come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. to episode number 64 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, I am going to be doing New Year, New Movie number 6 here, as the one that came up on the randomizer is The Tenant, the movie from Roman Polanski. That will be one of the featured reviews on here. And then the one that I decided to pair it up with from 2021 is the movie of Bright Hill Road, and then I'm a little bit light here on the mini reviews for this episode as I was kind of doing some other stuff like I end up watching a movie for a movie club for the podcast Under the Stairs so that review won't be on here. And then I also watched a movie of Creepshow 2 that is going to be featured over on Sledgehammer Horror on YouTube. So neither one of those will be on this episode. So the only mini reviews that I actually have for you is the Spanish language Dracula from 1931 as I continue that Odyssey through the ones. And then the other one is going to be a very brief recap of the movie Searching because it's not necessarily horror, but I thought I wanted to at least, you know, give a little bit of what I thought about it here on the mini review section. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, that's all I really wanted to get you caught up for here in the intro, is I'm going to get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me.
And for my first mini review here for you, I have Dracula from 1931. Now, you are not, you know, mishearing me here, but this is the one that's directed by George Melford. It is written by Balthazar Fernandez Q, and it comes from the novel from Bram Stoker. This stars Carlos Villares, Lupita Tovar, and Barry Norton. This is a drama fantasy horror film that is from the United States. And it is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis here being, Centuries-old vampire Dracula preys upon the innocent Eva and her friends. Now, if you are confused here, I'm going to kind of explain is that this is the Spanish language version that was filmed at the same time as the English one. Now, I didn't even know this existed until I was reading through the Fangoria Top 300 Horror Films issue list, and it looks like that they actually included this one and not the Bela Lugosi English version, as many people think that this might be the superior one. Now, I did know that many regarded this to be higher, as I was saying here, and this is only my second viewing, and I'm doing it as part of my Odyssey Through the Ones. Now, just to give a little bit of background information, it's the same exact movie as the other one where we have Renfield, who in this is portrayed by Pablo Alvarez Rubio, as he is going to Castle Dracula. It is there that he meets the Count, who is, you know, going in this one as Conde Dracula. He is being portrayed by Valeris. Now, they go back to England, where he is taking over Carfax Abbey. He ends up meeting his neighbor of Dr. Seward, portrayed by Jose Soriano Visoka. He runs the sanitarium where Renfield is being kept. And then also there they get to meet Dr. Seward, daughter of Ava, who is portrayed by Tovar. And then we also get to meet her fiancé of Juan Harker, portrayed by Barry Norton. And then their friend of Lucia, portrayed by Carmen Guerrero. Now, mysterious deaths start to happen in London. It confuses Dr. Seward, so he seeks out the help of Van Helsing, who is portrayed by Eduardo Arazalmina in Switzerland. Now, he believes that the evidence is showing that it's vampires, and he returns with his other doctor. While Seward is away, his daughter is showing similar symptoms as Lucia, who has passed away from acute blood loss. But can they stop Conde Dracula before it is too late? Now, as I've already been saying, what I thought is interesting here is that this Spanish version was filmed at night where the English version was filmed in the morning. They use the same exact sets and everything like that. So what I like about this version, much like the other one, is that we establish the lore of the vampire pretty early on. And then we get to get more of that when we meet Van Helsing. Now, I think that some seasoned horror fans might be annoyed with this, but I just give it so much credit for being, you know, early into cinema. What I kind of feel bad for is that I normally watch the English version first and then watch this one relatively close after. They're beat for beat pretty much the same exact movie. So I always kind of feel bad that I'm always, you know, had recently seen the English version. I will give credit here to the forward thinking by Universal here by doing a Spanish version, but I'm also assuming it didn't do that well in the box office as this is the only one that they did. Now, this one does push some things to compare due to the fact of how close each other are and being, you know, filmed in the same year and pretty much being simultaneous. So I'm going to try not to do that too much, but I will have to do it here and there. My first problem here is I think it's kind of funny is that we're in England, but everyone is speaking Spanish. I look at this being you know, directed towards Spanish speakers, but in the world of the movie, it's just a common language among everybody. Changing the name of the characters is kind of funny, but I don't hold this against the movie at all. This isn't one of my true issues, but I just think it's something I wanted to bring up here. My issue, though, is much like the English version, is that they're both based off the play and not the novel. 
they don't give us the killing of Lucia, which I do think would add a bit more. I just feel that it focuses on the sanitarium where Ava is slowly being drained of her life while Juan argues with Van Helsing and Dr. Seward, doesn't know what to do. I don't mind cutting out some of the characters and giving them a tighter cast. Having more of a subplot or more of an investigation into Conde Dracula would work better though and I think for the overall product. Being that this has a runtime of 105 minutes, it drugged for me. And I'm wondering how much of that is seeing, you know, pretty much the same movie little time in between them. What I will give credit to is that this one's racier. Before seeing it, there's a brief five-minute interview on my DVD with an interview with Tovar. The outfits for this version are much, show much more skin, especially for 1931. I'm pretty sure that watching it this time, Ava is in one of her nightgowns where you can see her nipples. I will give that the cast does have a lot more energy here. Now, Valaris as Dracula is interesting as he looks a lot like Lugosi. It is interesting that we give more credit to Lugosi as Dracula. No one brings him up in this role. His performance is on par for me, to be honest. Tovar is good as Ava. I really love that we get to meet her normal. Then she is lethargic from being drained of blood. That is until Dracula shows up and then she perks up. There is this change that comes over her character as well that is happening late in the movie as she turns a bit bad that I do enjoy. Norton is fine as Juan. My favorite performance again here would be Rubio as Renfield. He plays it differently than Dwight Fry, and he's way over the top with how maniacal he is, and it works though. Arazano Mina is solid as Van Helsing, and Viscoa is fine as Dr. Seward, and then the rest of the cast just rounds us out for what was needed. Now, as for the effects being early cinema, we don't get a lot. There are some cheesy ones, you know, with like the spider and how the bat moves. I wouldn't be shocked to see if that was the same exact footage just shared between the two versions. What I did want to say is that the cinematography is fine, but there's not a lot of camera movement, and I don't really expect that. It is a step back that they don't focus on the eyes like they do in the English version. I shouldn't hold against this movie, but I don't feel like we really get as much of an understanding as to how Kaundu Dracula can control people, in my opinion. So, I know people go back and forth about which version's better. I still think that the English version is better, but this is not too far behind for me. I wish they would have adapted more from the novel and not so much the play, but I think the acting is good, the effects are fine for the era, the cinematography is good, but just lacking a bit, and then the soundtrack fit for what was needed as well. I will give credit for Universal for taking the gamble to produce the same movie, just, you know, with minorities and in their language. For me, though, this is just an above-average movie that is lacking a bit to the other version, and I came in for the Spanish version of Dracula from 1931 as a 7.5 out of 10. And the only other movie that I'm going to be including here as mini reviews is going to be Searching from 2018. This is directed by Anish Changati, who also co-wrote this with Svev Ohani. This stars John Cho, Deborah Messing, and Joseph Lee. This is a drama mystery thriller that is from the United States and Russia. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, after his teenage daughter goes missing, a desperate father tries to find clues on her laptop. So really all I was going to share about this one, since it isn't technically a horror movie, but it is definitely got a scary idea, is that I debated, you know, when to see this, when it was in the theaters, and end up missing it there. The reason was that... It wasn't as much horror as I thought it was, and you know, other people had been saying that, so I was like, okay, I'll just hold off on seeing this, and I'm pretty sure at the time, there were a bunch of movies that were there that were horror movies that I saw instead, so Jamie and I decided to watch this together, as I've been recommending it for a while, but it's a haunting story that is told by David Kim, portrayed by Cho, through the desktop of a laptop computer. 
and for the most part, it is really scary. Since his father doesn't know enough about his daughter, and he doesn't realize that until he is trying to piece together what could have happened to her, there's a good reason that there is a, you know, this is a nightmare that unfolds with many twists and turns. Not a horror movie, though, but definitely one that I really enjoyed. It has some good emotions, and I love the concept, and it all just kind of worked for me. And it's kind of interesting is that I saw a brief little kind of special feature after the movie ended about all the Easter eggs in the movie. So it's one that, now that I know how it plays out, I would like to see it again and, you know, try to see if I can piece together some things earlier than what I did. But, you know, definitely a good mystery that kept me guessing all the way up until the end. And I like how they present different characters in the movie on top of that. So that's all I'm going to do here for mini-reviews. I know it's much shorter this week, but I, like I said, a little bit busier from what I said you know, in the intro and everything like that. So what I'm going to do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Paris. On a quiet street. In an old building. A dead woman's vacant apartment is waiting. Waiting for the tenant. Roman Polanski is the tenant. In Chinatown, he exposed the dark side of corruption. In Repulsion, he explored a warped mind. In Rosemary's Baby, he examined the occult. Now, the tenant. Something altogether new, altogether chilling. No one does it to you like Roman Polanski. Lieutenant, a Roman Polanski film coming from Paramount Pictures. And for my first featured review of this episode is going to be The Tenant from 1976. This is directed by Roman Polanski, who also co-wrote the screenplay along with Gerard Brock. And this comes from the novel written by Roland Topar. This might be a little bit difficult, but the people starring in this is Polanski, Isabel Adjani, Melvin Douglas, along with Joe Van Fleet, Bernard Fressen, Lila Cordova, Claude Dauphin, Claude Paipleu, Rufus, Romaine Boutelli, Jacques Monod, Patrice Alexandri, Jean-Pierre Begot, Jocene Balasco, and Michael Blanc. And I didn't see her name on there as well, but I also should point out that Shelley Winters also has a, you know, pretty fairly sized role in this for being more of like a cameo I would say. This is technically a drama thriller but this is also a horror movie in my opinion and I mean I'm not the only one that kind of thinks that and then this is a co-production of France and the United States that is currently sitting on a 7.7 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being a bureaucrat rents a Paris apartment where he finds himself drawn into a rabbit hole of dangerous paranoia. Now, this is a movie that I got turned on to thanks to podcasts, as well as that Fangoria Top 300 Horror Movies issue. I knew the name of Polanski, of course, by this time, as I already had seen Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, and The Ninth Gate. But the first two actually complete this apartment trilogy with this movie here. Now, it has been on a list of my movies to see, and I finally pulled the trigger as the number came up for the randomizer, of course, for my segment here of New Year, New Movie Segment. And... Before I kind of delve into this a bit more, I do have some featured notes that I want to share. I'll be really diving a lot into Polanski. As a director, he has 36 films. Of those, four are horror. The first was Repulsion, followed by The Fearless Vampire Killers, which is the only one of this bunch that I haven't seen. 
The next two round out the apartment trilogy with Rosemary's Baby, as well as this movie here. Now, I've also seen his movie of The Pianist, Chinatown, and The Ninth Gate. Now, as a writer, he has 32 films to his credit. In the genre of the same four movies that I listed, you know, above and kind of named off, he also penned The Ninth Gate and Knife in the Water, which is another one that I've also seen that's quite interesting and kind of early on in his career. Now, his co-writer of Brock is someone who has 38 movies as a writer. It appears that the two have worked together quite a bit as well. He co-wrote Repulsion and The Fearless Vampire Killers, along with, you know, this movie here. He also penned Dr. Lerner, Subgod, which I've never heard of, and then Dario Argento's The Phantom of the Opera from 1998, which wasn't very good. Aside from that, he did write The Quest for Fire, which is just an interesting movie that I have seen. And there's also the writer of the novel of Topar. This is the only work that I've seen from him and the only one that has made it into a horror movie as well. Now, Polanski as an actor has been in quite a bit. He appears in 83 movies from what I saw. Of those, he was in all four of the movies that I've kind of kept bringing up and naming here of the Apartment Trilogy along with the Fearless Vampire Killers. He's also in a mockumentary called The Evolution of Snuff from 1978 that I haven't seen or heard of. Aside from that, I've seen him in Knife in the Water, Rush Hour 3, and Blood for Dracula. Now, his co-star of Anjani has 52 acting credits. Of those, five are horror films. The first was this movie here. She followed it up with Nosferatu the Vampire, Possession from 1981, the last horror film, and Diabolique from 1996. And the only one I've seen her here is this movie and Nosferatu. Then finally, the last one I'm going to go into is Melvin Douglas. He has 92 movies that I see that he's been in. In horror, only of those are, you know, five of them. The first was on my list of films to see here in the near future of The Old Dark House from 1932, followed that up with The Vampire Bat from 33, and then this movie, and then he took some time off before coming back for The Changeling from 1980, which I also really like, and then the last one was the next year after that of Ghost Story that I believe was penned the novel by Peter Straub. Now to get into this movie here, the credits we are given are seeing the outside of an apartment building, and when we look into one of the windows we are seeing people. Reflecting back on this is that it is set in the stage of, you know, kind of the peeping Tom type thing and a little bit of voyeurism. But then we also get this really cool thing where we see somebody, the camera tilts down before coming back up, and the person is different, which plays into the movie. And we also get to see different people in different windows as well. Now this takes us here to our star of... Trovkowski, who is Polanski, he meets with the concierge portrayed by Shelley Winters about seeing an apartment there. She is skeptical and isn't one who really seems to want to be bothered by this right now. She also inquires as to how he heard about the room. Trovkowski is polite in his responses and she takes him up to see it. It appears that the woman who lives there tried to kill herself and the concierge finds it funny. This doesn't seem to phase him as much as you would think, but he also does kind of inquire about the terms to stay there. She cannot go negotiate with him and then ends up taking him to the landlord of Monsieur Z, who is portrayed by Douglas. They have some back and forth that results in Zai taking to liking Trovkowski. He cannot rent the room to him at this time, though, as the tenant of Simone is still alive in the hospital. Now, he is curious about her and goes to the hospital just to pay her a visit. It appears there that she is out of her coma, but she's not supposed to talk is what the head nurse tells him. At her bedside is her friend of Stella, portrayed by Ed Johnny. The two of them talk, and this allows Trovkowski to learn more about her as well as Simone. The two of them spend the rest of the day together despite the unnerving hospital visit. 
Now he continues to check on her status until he learns that she has passed away. He then moves into her apartment. As he's getting himself acclimated, he decides to have some friends from work over for a housewarming party. They're having a good time and maybe a bit too much of that as his upstairs neighbor comes on to complain about the noise. He has everyone leave and the next day he is scolded by Zai as well. This starts him down this kind of path here where he has to deal with most everyone from the building complaining about him, which is kind of interesting because he really just kind of wants to keep to himself. Trofkowski goes to the nearby cafe where the owner, portrayed by Monod, treats him like the previous tenant of his apartment. He makes him a chocolate to drink and then gives him the same brand of cigarettes, even though it isn't the brand that he smokes. Along with those in the building, Trofkowski descends into a bit of madness as he looks into what happened to Simone. Are his neighbors being as mean to him as he thinks, or is some of this just kind of in his head? I think that gets you up to speed here for a recap of this movie. Now, where I want to start my analysis is that this trilogy from Polanski is quite interesting. Repulsion is dealing with, you know, a disturbed young woman that descends into madness in her apartment, and Rosemary's Baby is a classic that is dealing with the potential coven of Satanists. I wasn't sure what we'd be getting here, but having now see this, I do see how they all kind of fit together. The first thing that intrigued me is that he directed, co-written, and starred. I'm shocked at his performance as well. I know about his legal troubles that happened not too long after this movie, and of course what happened with Sharon Tate. I wonder how much of the latter plays into his portrayal of Trufkowski. It also makes me consider how much of this is just him as this character is timid, and I love that we get to see this as his friends that come over are bullying him into standing up to his neighbors, but he doesn't want to rock the boat. Despite what he does, it annoys them and this causes him to descend into madness and drives him to what happens in the end. Now what I kind of want to elaborate there is that he keeps getting these things that he's being complained about, but all he's doing is trying to keep to himself and this causes him not even to want to go back to his apartment, even though he doesn't seem like he's doing these things that they're claiming and he, that some of this stuff might not actually be really happening. This movie really plays with us, you know, not knowing what is real and what's not, just kind of, you know, elaborate on that. Zai is stern with him in the beginning, but we see that he has a fondness for how direct Trofkowski is along with, you know, the answers to the things that he's asked. This poor young man, though, has an upstairs neighbor who is mean to him over being loud. Madame Dawes, who is portrayed by Van Fleet, doesn't like an answer that she gets when she's asking him a question, and even Trofkowski's friends mock him. Now, this guy, by nature, is just quiet and really just wants to keep to himself. There are some social commentary here as he's not from Paris. The character's from Poland, much like Polanski is, which comes into play when he wants to report a robbery in his apartment. He is swayed away as there's distrust of him being an outsider. This isolates him, and there's this despair of not being able to be helped that this movie kind of gives to us. And that kind of also feel like this isolation and depression that he's feeling makes him descend into madness even more. And going along with this isolating and feeling alone, there's also another issue here with the repression and sexuality. Trefkolsky is taking over the apartment of Simone, who is a woman. When he starts to meet with those that know her, they are pushing him to order the same drink and cigarettes as her. Trefkolsky finds a dress of hers in the wardrobe that's still in the apartment. The longer this goes on, the more that he starts to become like her. He tries to prevent this from happening, but I think even from the beginning, he might not know his own sexual preference, there's also an interesting scene here when he goes out with Stella as they get pretty hot and heavy in the theater and then she just kind of shuts everything down from that point on but he also doesn't seem necessarily interested when they see each other you know as things go on. I think that's all about all I want to delve into with the story here so I'm going to shift this over to the acting. I've already said that I'm really impressed with Polanski. I think he did an amazing job here with conveying what he needed to for this character. It is really a character study of him so everyone else is just there in support. I like that and Johnny is attracted to him but not always sure if it's sexually or as a friend. 
She also helps, you know, piece things together for him for Simone. Douglas is good as the landlord. Van Fleet helps to drive the character of Travolsky into despair with how much she, you know, is making his life more difficult. The rest of the characters are also good in support for me as well. Now, this really isn't a movie that needs a whole lot of effects, so we don't get a lot of them. What we do get, though, are done practically. Something that I really need to bring up here is the cinematography. There's this amazing optical effect where Travolsky is asleep and reaches out for, a, like, a water bottle on a chair that he's using as an end table. It looks two-dimensional, and I was impressed. We also get another odd focus like this later on where he's walking towards the window, and everything just kind of looks kind of distorted. Now, the rest of the cinematography, you know, to go along with this works really well. So I have to give credit for that. And if I do have a gripe with this movie, it just runs too long. The movie runs over two hours. I think this could have been trimmed to be just less than that. And it could have ran tighter. There are just some things I don't think add much and really just kind of pad the time out to be a little bit too much. Not enough to ruin things, but I do lose my interest in some things as it does feel a little bit repetitive at times. So before I close this out, I do have some bit of trivia here that I'm going to share. Now, of course, this is a loose trilogy that are dealing with the horrors faced by apartment and city dwellers. Polanski did visit Robert Shaw at his Irish home to discuss a part, but the meeting went so poorly that no offer was made. Although Polanski plays the leading role in this film, he is given no screen credit as an actor. He dubbed himself for the Italian version. The source material of Le Locatier Chimerici by Topar was first published in 64. The film was made approximately 12 years later. This film has entered and accepted to screen at, in the competition at Cannes Film Festival in 76. This picture was filmed in both French and English languages. Now, the composer chose a glass harmonica after having seen Polanski at the restaurant mimicking this with his finger, uh, the action of making glass sing. There's also only one person left in the world that could play this instrument, for which Mozart wrote a few pieces. This is Bruce Campbell's favorite scary movie. All right, I think that's all I'm really going to kind of share here for any sort of trivia like that so in conclusion i had some high expectations in knowing that polanski has done some amazing movies and the other two in this trilogy are really good this really is an amazing performance from him in the lead and i think that there's an interesting elements of social commentary here that are still relevant today the cinematography is pretty amazing on top of that if i'm going to be honest it does run a bit long and the soundtrack just worked for me for what was needed after this first viewing this is my least favorite at the moment of this trio but that's not to say i don't like it i find this to be overall still a good movie and it'll be one that i will revisit again now that i know how things play out just to see if i might have missed anything and if there's anything more that i can kind of pull from it because i'll be honest after watching this one i needed to reflect on this before i wrote anything and of course recorded this so for my rating on the tenant is going to be an eight out of ten so i'm not going to do a spoiler section i don't really feel like i needed anything to kind of explain anything more or anything like that a lot of it's just more like nuances and a lot of it is just kind of a character study and seeing what this guy goes through and where he ends up so what i'm going to go ahead and do though is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review which is going to be a 2021 released movie that i think pairs up pretty interesting here with the tenant inside me. She's relentless. She just wants to drink. 
Bright Hill Road has been a way station for all kinds of people. And some of these people are doing penance for their sins, no names. I think all your troubles stem from your inability to see things as they really are. As they really are? Bright Hill Road does not cry or judge. My second featured review here is going to be my 2021 release of Bright Hill Road. This is directed by Robert Cuffley. This is written by Susie Maloney and it stars Shibin Williams, Michael Eklund, and Agam Darshi. And the only other person that is listed on IMDb as for the credits is Sally Cassie? Kekchi? Something like that. Not really sure how to say that. But this is a horror film that is from Canada. And this is currently sitting on a 4.3 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, when a misstep after a workplace shooting puts alcoholic Marcy on leave, she heads out to see her sister in California. Halfway there, she stops for a couple days at the Bright Hill Road boarding house. The walls close in on the deeply troubled Marcy as she loses touch with reality and comes face to face with the misdeeds of her sordid past. Now, this is a movie that I got turned on to thanks to Mark Nato. It is hard earlier in a year to find movies that are being released in that year, especially in the horror genre. Now, he does an excellent job getting lists out there of potential ones. And when I read the synopsis here, I thought that it would pair up well with The Tenant. So I end up, you know, checking this out. And then before I get into my actual like recapping and analysis of the movie, some featured notes for you. Now, our director of Cuffley has made six films so far. This is the first feature in genre. Now, to his credit, he does have a short called Penny Whistle from 2018 that is horror, but this is the only film that I've seen. And then the writer of Maloney only has, you know, this feature. Now, she has worked in TV and doing shorts prior here. Now, Williams as our lead has been in 12 movies as an actress. Aside from this, she was in Forever 16 from 2013, which is horror. And I've only ever seen her here in this movie. And I will say, it looks like she did a lot of, like, Disney Channel-type movies, you know, prior to that. So it looks like she was at least a, if not a child actress, a teen actress. Eklund, on the other hand, has 54 films. 16 of those have been in horror. His first was House of the Dead from 2003, which I've seen and didn't care for. I've also seen him in The Divide, The Day, Blood Rain 2, and finally this one. He seems to stick with the WWE films as I was looking through his filmography, and I was impressed to see him be in that many horror films, but I've also seen him in Watchmen, The Call, 88 Minutes, and Smoking Aces 2, Assassin's Ball. Then the final actress here I'm going to go over is Darshi. Now, she has 24 acting credits, four of them are in horror. Along with seeing this movie, I've seen her in Final Destination 3 and Snakes on a Plane. Now, she was also in The Haunting of Sorority Row that stars Light and Meister. That one I haven't seen, and I've never actually heard of it either. But she's also appeared in Poison Ivy, The Secret Society, Watchmen, and 2012 that I have seen as well. So for this movie, we start off seeing a dark room that looks to be made out of wood. We hear a man's voice calling out to her, and then we realize that we are in the apartment of Marcy as she wakes up. 
there is something interesting here that we get used to introduce our main character. What we're seeing is hazy, and the reason is that our character is experiencing a hangover. To help combat this, she is already drinking, you know, getting a little bit of the hair of the dog as she heads into work. We see her continue to drink all the way in, even at her desk, and even while she's driving. Now, when she arrives, her secretary, who's portrayed by Cassie, tells her that the boss is asking for her, and there are concerns with a guy that they fired recently by the name of Harvey. There's an interesting sequence here where Marcy ha is the human resources person for this company, but she didn't do her job. Harvey showed up and started to shoot up the place. Not realizing this is happening, Marcy goes to the bathroom to throw up due to her drinking. A woman hiding in there is shot and dies in Marcy's arms from Harvey. To make matters worse, she is put on leave while talking to her boss after the event, you know, due to her drinking. Something else I also kind of want to point out here is I think it's weird that the shooter didn't come in and, you know, see if there's anybody else in there, especially because Marcy is the one that I end up letting him go. And I would assume he she would be the target a little bit more than what we get here. I think this is a little bit of movie magic as, you know, not having our main character get killed this early on, but just something I wanted to point out here as well. And then after this event, Marcy is asked to go home to reevaluate her life. We then see her dump out all of the booze in her place and she packs a bag. Her plan is to visit her sister in California. Her addiction runs deep though. Even though we saw her pour everything out, she is drinking while driving these little airplane bottles of liquor. And then we hear a swerve of tires. The next morning, Marcy finds herself parked near a building with a sign stating hotel. It is formerly that among other things where it is now a boarding house. The proprietor is Mrs. Inman, portrayed by Darcy. She knocks on Marcy's window and this wakes her up. She decides that she's going to stay a few days and Mrs. Inman checks her in. Marcy continues to struggle with her drinking. There's a complimentary bottle of wine provided and she attempts to have just one glass. Now, she also attempts to give up drinking completely while staying here. Mrs. Inman is helping her with her withdrawals, but this isn't the only demon that she's facing. Marcy has some dark things in her past and she, you know, has to deal with them. She's also quite irritable when a guy by the name of Owen, portrayed by Eklund, moves into a room down the hall. He is playful, but she isn't as enthused as he'd like. He is also harboring a dark secret of his own. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap, and I will say that this movie is doing some interesting things story-wise and bringing up some relevant topics as well. If you know me, I'm a sucker for social commentary, and that is something I can get behind. Since we are following Marcy, that is where I'm going to start. As stated in the recap, she is an alcoholic. The writing for this character is really good in that we are seeing the different stages and excuses that an alcoholic would make up. I know people who have battled addiction, especially this one, and I've seen quite a few episodes of Intervention. There are times where she will admit that she has a problem, and then others where she is hiding it. Regardless, though, she does think that she can control it whenever she wants, which is, you know, a misconception that many of these people facing addiction, you know, kind of deal with, especially when they're in the throes of it. We also see that she is allowed, you know, the different lies she will tell herself when she's alone. And I thought this was well done in the exploration of that character. Another aspect of her that I wanted to bring up is dealing with the demons of the deeds from the past. Her father is dead, and it seems that she might be to blame here. He died in a fire, and there is speculation, or at least she is carrying the guilt that she is the cause to it. It does appear to be an accident, though. Regardless, she blames herself. Her sister seems to as well from the phone calls that we hear. She is also partially to blame for the shooting that occurred at work. She didn't do her job properly, and her drinking might have been, you know, part of the blame there. She is carrying that with her as well. This movie does a good, another good job here with mirrors. 
She at one point sees herself covered in blood, and that freaks her out. And then she also sees a darker version of herself that is demon-like. But we don't know if this is a dream or if she actually saw this or if it's, you know, the withdrawals making her hallucinate. Both of these I thought were well done with the explanation at the end as well. The next thing here is that I'm going to try to be as vague as possible. So I'm not going to do a spoiler section, and I'll get into why in a little bit as well. The boarding house, though, isn't as it seems. Marcy believes that it's haunted with things that she is hearing and seeing. Her Owen and Mrs. Inman all have reasons that they're there and dealing with demons of their own. And I thought this was interesting. I did predict why they were all there about the halfway point of the movie. Maybe a little bit earlier than that. So that does hurt the movie for me. And I'll be honest, the movie got a bit boring for me as it got a little bit repetitive and just kind of meandered. I think it is interesting. Just Some of the things earlier on in this movie were better than what we got here, in my opinion. Now, where I'll go next would be the acting. This is a mostly a character study of Marcy. She needs to find herself, and we see her as she's hitting, you know, the rock bottom of her character in the terms of the movie. I think that Williams does a solid job in her performance. I didn't really have any issues with her, and I think her portrayal works for what they needed. I liked Eklund as he was this annoying guy who's a bit misogynistic and childish. It all makes sense for his reveal as well. Darcy is also solid as this character that's trying to guide Marcy for the better, and then the rest of the cast just rounded this out for what was needed in their limited roles. Now I'll combine the last couple elements here, and the cinematography is well done. I wouldn't be surprised to see if the director of Coughley was either a director of photography previously, or whomever he got to be the DP here having a lot of experience. I really enjoyed the framing, the depth of focus, the blurring of images to represent hazy vision, and then the use of mirrors in this movie. There are a lot in the way of effects aside from that, but I really liked what they did with, the, you know, seeing the darker side of people in the mirrors, so I'll give credit there. And then also the soundtrack just worked for what was needed on top of that. There are some good musical cues that we got in this movie for sure. So I don't really couldn't find any trivia this movie. It is a little bit too new. So in conclusion, I really like the ideas this movies are exploring, especially since, you know, they're relevant to society today. William's portrayal of Marcy as she's dealing with her addictions and demons of the past really worked for me. I would say that the rest of the cast helped to get the, her character where it needed to in the end. The cinematography, the effects, the soundtrack also worked for me. If anything, though, I predicted a little bit early to where this was going, and I feel that the movie loses its way in the middle. For that, I'd say this is an above-average movie for me. It is just lacking some of the elements for me to go any higher here. So my rating for this movie of Bright Hill Road is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. As I already said earlier, I'm not going to do a spoiler section. So what I'm going to go do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Oh, it's 
I want to thank you for listening to episode number 64 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Just to close everything out here, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Anything that you want right on the show, just let me know in that email. And then if you don't, you know, kind of same thing there. But I would, you know, like to hear any of your thoughts on any of the reviews on here, anything from the past. Or if you just kind of wanted to chat with me or anything like that, just go ahead and shoot me an email there. If you'd like to read any of the reviews for anything on this episode or any of the past ones, that's Reviews of the Dead. And that is horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish letterboxed to see any of the reviews on here or kind of any of my ratings or any thoughts on anything like that it is david osu on instagram if you want to follow me there it's david osu 87 you can follow the journey with a cinephile instagram at journey with a cinephile they're all one word and i will have all of the links to all of that in the show notes just to make it easier on you and then the last thing that I would ask for you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so that way you never miss a new episode, as well if you're able to, you know, rate and review, I'd kind of like to hear, you know, even if you don't like some things that I'm doing, just sort any sort of feedback on there would be greatly appreciated and also help me to get out there to more listeners. So outside of that, what I'm going to go ahead and do is that this is going to be, you know, the last episode of January. So for February is going to be, I hate that it's, you know, falling in the same month, but Women's Appreciation and, you know, Black History Month. So what I'm going to do is that the first episode I'm going to have is going to be a woman-directed spotlight again, and that's going to be number three for that. And what I'm going to end up doing is it looks like the movie Hard Labor was on Letterboxd like top 100 women directed films so i'm gonna watch that one it is a horror movie and then i'm not really sure what new release i'm gonna pair up with it yet from 2021 it probably end up won't being a woman directed one just because there's so limited movies out so far but i will pair up something i think you know kind of fits with that well so that'll be the double feature there and then i will continue doing my odyssey through the ones as well you know just in part of the mini reviews at least there so that's all I really kind of wanted to delve you like delve into here and get you kind of caught up on everything. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 